attended a college for four years in Philadelphia. And my last uh, semester, I needed a job. And so I looked in the newspaper, and I saw an ad for uh, someone that needed a companion for their 19-year-old boy who had autism. And so I applied for the job. I got the job. Uh, the boy's name, I have a picture. His name was Nate. Uh, that's him right there. And my uh, schedule with Nate was the same just about every time I went to his home. Uh, I would go there Monday through Friday from 3 o'clock until 5 o'clock. And almost every day, it was the same. I, I would arrive just before Nate got home from school, and I would sit down with his stepfather, who would be doing crosswords at the time, and we would chit-chat for a few minutes. Early on in our conversations, we were talking about World War II, and he said, I actually served in World War II. And I said, wow. I said, thank you for your sacrifice for our country. And he got a little quiet for a second, and then he said, Actually, I served on the side of the Germans, and so it was a very awkward part of our conversation. <laughs> Wasn't sure if I should take back what I said. I, but anyway, it went on, and, and Nate uh, would arrive home from school. He'd be dropped off in this van, and the first thing he would always say to me, this is my favorite part of my time with him, is he'd always say, with a big smile on his face, Hi, Toms, like that. And I'd say, Nate, hi. I, I'd say, but Nate, what's my name? And he could only say a few words, and so he would say, Tom's, like that. And he'd get a big smile on his face, and I'd say, Nate, what's my name? And he'd say, Tom's, like that, real excited. And I'd say, Nate, that's not my name. What's my name? And he'd say, Paul's, like that. <laughs> and I loved it. And so he would come inside, and uh, we would get him a snack, and then the two of us would go outside, and he had this flag that he would like to march around the house with because he liked to think that he was in a parade. And so my job was to make the drum noises, and I'd go, do, 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 do. And probably 45 times we would walk around this house every day, and at the exact same spot, he would pretend that he tripped fall down on the ground and laugh hysterically like it was the first time that it had ever happened. And the guy, really, Nate, had this joy that was in his life that would, that would come out. And he thought it was hilarious, and I would think it was hilarious too, just watching him enjoy this moment. And then every day, we would go inside, and we would sit down, and we would watch the first 45 minutes of Dances with Wolves. Literally, every day, I've, I've seen the first part of, of Dances with Wolves for about 45 minutes, and that's not so bad. It could have been like Beverly Hills Cop 2 or something like that, but he would never pick up where we left off the day before. He always wanted to watch the, the first part. And during that time, his mother, who is the most wonderful woman, she, she told me this one of my early days, that when Nate watches TV, he likes to have his feet rubbed. And so Nate as the movie would come on, would untie his shoe. And he was a teenager, you know, and, and so you know how teenagers' feet are, right? <laughs> and he would start to kind of shift his feet over towards me because he wanted me to rub his feet. And for me, it was, it was different every time he would do that. Sometimes going through my mind was, if anybody deserves to have their feet rubbed at the end of the day, it's this guy. And I think of that passage where Jesus says, whatever you do, the least of these you've done to me. And sometimes I could rub Nate's feet and think, this is like Jesus' feet. This is a privilege for me to rub these feet. Other times it wasn't that way. Other times I wanted to get through the, the foot rub as quick as I could. And I learned on one occasion that if I just kind of ignore his feet, that eventually he'll stop shifting them in 
my direction. But for me, if you can understand this, whether or not I would rub his feet and the kind of heart that I had as I did that was always the test when I was with Nate. And what I started to realize was that if I was going to rub this kid's feet with joy and with love, it was going to be something that I would need to cultivate on my way there. I realized my time with Nate and what I was able to offer to him, it was dependent on the attitude that I developed on the car ride before I got to the house. And as Tom said this morning, I, I found out attitude is everything. There are so many of you who serve in so many different ways around this church, and I'm guessing you can relate to that, right? I'm guessing you can relate to the idea that how that goes when you serve, it depends on the kind of attitude and heart that, that you have as you come in. The same thing is true for me. And this morning what we're going to take a look at is we are going to take a look at one of the most spectacular attitudes a person could have as they come to serve. Uh, John the Baptist displays exactly the kind of attitude that I want to cultivate, I think you will want to cultivate, when you come into a place where you're giving and serving. And so this morning we can think of this as a time to think about what kind of attitude ought I ask God to produce in me before I come to serve. And you find it in the story of John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist is such an interesting person. Uh, he was incredibly uh, popular in Israel in his day. And the Bible tells us that John the Baptist was someone who was loved by the people. Part of the reason why he was loved by the people was he was incredibly eccentric. Uh, John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets, and all the prophets were a little bit odd and weird and strange. That's part of how they attracted attention, and John was that way too. We're told that John lived in the wilderness, didn't have a normal house. We're told that he wore camel hair outfits, which was sort of strange for the time, and his diet consisted of locusts and honey. I think he mixed them together and spread it on a bagel, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure. It was odd. People didn't really get that, and they became curious about him. But what he was really famous for is John the Baptist was famous for his preaching. Just like Billy Graham of our day, you might say, is just someone that God chose to use in an incredibly powerful way in American history. John the Baptist was the same back then. John, in his preaching, had a fire, and he had a passion, and when John spoke, people would listen, and John was not afraid to tell people straight what he thought. There was one main message that he would give. This was, this was the summary of every message that John the Baptist would preach. It was repentance. John would say to the people, you're going this way, you need to turn around and go that way because Jesus is coming. And that was John's job. He was like the hinge on a door. It was like the Old Testament was ending. The New Testament was beginning. Jesus was about to be on the scene. And John was incredibly direct and blunt. In fact, he once said of the religious leaders of the time that they were a brood of vipers, which is such an insult. I mean, it's not even just saying that, that, that these religious leaders are snakes. What he was saying is, you're not even adult snakes. You're immature, poisonous snakes. And the crowds love that sort of thing, you know? But John the Baptist, the thing about him was he loved Jesus. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin, and yet he believed that Jesus was the Son of God. 
And that is just one proof that Jesus actually was the Son of God. The people who were closest with Jesus didn't think he was just some person. They thought he was God. His mother thought he was God. John, his cousin, thought he was God. His brother James thought that he was God too. And John the Baptist loved Jesus so much, thought so highly of him, that what he said was, me, John the Baptist, I am not even worthy to untie his sandal. Choose the most menial job. I'm not worthy to do that for Jesus. And John, well, he loved Jesus. He also had an incredible attitude towards his work, his ministry, his service. Now, it's not hard to have a great attitude about the things that we serve in when those things are going well, is it? Not too tough. And they were going well for John for a long time. But there was going to come a day in John's life where his attitude was going to be tested and things that had been going well before were not going to be going as well for him anymore. And attitudes are always tested. They're always shown under pressure. And John would have his moment of pressure too. When he was in the height of his popularity, Jesus began his ministry And what began to happen was the spotlight that had been on John for so long began to shift, and now it was over on Jesus. And the crowds who used to flock to John to hear him preach were now flocking to Jesus. And disciples who used to be John's disciples were now becoming Jesus' disciples. Kind of like a man who is very famous in his company. He's the one that everyone celebrates, and then some new college grad comes in, and he's not the man of the hour anymore. And what the passage that Devin just read read to us this morning, it tells us when that happened, how John responded. It tells us what his attitude was. And John basically in this passage says three things. And what I want you and, and me to pay attention to this morning is the attitude in which he served God. And the first thing I think we find in this passage is this. John did not serve so that people would like him. John did not serve so that people would like him. Listen to what it says, or read what it says in verse 26. It says, And they, they being John's disciples, And John's disciples came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, that's who? Jesus. They say, John, Jesus, who you bore witness to, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. So the rest of John's disciples, the ones who hadn't already left and gone to Jesus, the ones who are still loyal to him, they come to John and say, John, do you see this? All the people now, they're going over to Jesus. What's your response? They're angry. They're, they're envious. They feel badly for John. And we're told how John answers. It says, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. John says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given from heaven. 
So the disciples come to John and they say, how do you feel about this? What are you going to do about this? How are you going to handle this? How are we going to win these people back over to our side? And John's response is, this is not a competition. This is not a competition. Basically what he's saying here is that the way that God uses me or doesn't use me is totally up to God. I serve however God sees fit for me to serve. And whatever the results are from me serving, those are up to God too. If God wants to use me, great. If he wants to use somebody else, great. He says this is about God and his work, not about me and mine. There's a phrase that sometimes cabinet members in the White House will use. In fact, it's written on their job description and they say it at times. A cabinet member will often say, I serve at the pleasure of the president. I think that's John's answer. John said, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. And what this shows within John's attitude is this incredible freedom that he had as he served. I mean, John's ministry, you've got to understand, in, the, in his day, it brought him fame and stature and respect and popularity, the applause of the people. But when all of that changes, what you see in John was that he was never really looking for that in the first place. John didn't need the approval of the crowds. John wasn't in this so that people would like him. It's really easy to serve God so that people will like us. I think that's really true. I remember a, a leader in our Crossroads group years ago was talking to the students, and, and I was listening, and he told a story that, that impacted me. I remembered it for some reason. He said that it was snowing really hard one evening, and in the morning he got up and noticed that the neighbor's driveway had not been shoveled. And he said, I'm going to go out, and I'm just going to secretly shovel this driveway for the neighbor because I, I think that that's what God would, how God would want me to serve. And he said he got his shovel and he went outside and he said that he, he, he just couldn't help himself. He was trying not to do it, but he kept looking to the window of this house of the neighbor to see if they might be looking. And he had this, this tension within himself. On one hand, he said, I want to do this purely for God, but I can't help it. I, I want them to notice and he said, the truth is, sometimes I serve because I really want people to notice. I want to do it for the right reasons, but I don't. Why does the approval of other people mean so much to us? Why do we desire acceptance from others like we do? And the, the thing is, in, in all truth, we can be hugely competitive about it. Uh, the, the elders went to a conference recently, and there was a man who was speaking there who uh, made this point. Uh, he was talking about the play Othello, which is a Shakespearean play, and he was talking about how well it, it pictures the human condition. And in that play, one of the characters, whose name is Iago, is very jealous of another character who's in the play, whose name is Cassio. And Iago feels that Cassio has this incredibly easy, smooth life. And here's what Iago says about Cassio. Iago says, he has a daily beauty in his life that makes me ugly. He has a daily beauty in his life that makes me ugly. 
And what he's saying is, he's saying, look, I feel fine about my life until I look at him. And when I look at him, I realize that I'm ugly. I, I can't just enjoy and celebrate the goodness of his life. I've got to compare it to mine. And if I'm going to feel better about myself again, I've got to be better than him. A lot of us live that way. Uh, unfortunately, there's always somebody better though, right? And that ends up being just a rat wheel. I, I had a friend of mine who recently decided to audition for the show The Voice. And he was telling me what this audition would be like. He said, you get up in front of these judges and he said, you have 15 seconds. I think it was 15 seconds, he said. And if in 15 seconds they like you, then you get a minute, and if you, you go past this minute, then, then you're on the show. That's how it works. And my friend did not, he, you know, he went, he tried out, but he, he didn't get onto the show. And I thought, well, how can you possibly feel badly about that? They had 15 seconds with which to judge you. Well, do you know how long it takes for a person to make an impression of you, gather an impression of you? Do you know how long that takes? Do you know how long it takes for someone to make a decision of what they think about you? I don't just mean your appearance. I mean how, how your likability. They did a study on, on competence. How quickly do we determine a people's competence and their trustworthiness? Do you know how long it takes? One-tenth of a second. In one-tenth of a second, people have decided those things about you. And what I would ask is, should we really trust the people around us to decide our identity? Should we trust them to decide if we're valuable or not? I mean, we all have this desire to be loved and to be known and to be accepted and to be appreciated by people, to do things that are important and meaningful, but it's easy through service to try to find uh, acceptance and appreciation to fill our insecurities. And I think that what John shows us here is that that is the wrong motivation for service. That eventually, it, it will stop sustaining us. You can't serve in that way for the long haul, or John the Baptist would have just been done. And one of the most freeing truths that we have in the Bible is that God says, when you serve, you serve for an audience of one. You serve at my pleasure. It's not an audition. It's not a competition. And John says, look, I just do what God asked me to do, and I try to do my best at it. And if it goes well, it goes well. If it doesn't, it doesn't. If somebody else does better, great. I will celebrate that. I serve at God's pleasure. John said, I don't serve so that people will like me. And when we serve at God's pleasure, it is so freeing. We're not auditioning. Second thing that John uh, did is, did not do, I should say, he didn't serve to make other people like him. You know what else he didn't do? He didn't serve so that God would like him. John did not serve so that God would like him. Uh, listen to this, it goes on. John says, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. 
Here's the thing about John, is he knew what his place was, John, and he knew what Jesus' place was, and the illustration that he uses in this passage is a wedding. And John says that Jesus is like the groom. And he says, me, John, I am not the hired help at the wedding. I'm not the DJ. I'm not just a guest who's sort of around to see it. He says, I'm the groom's friend. Jesus is the groom. I'm in the wedding party. We've all been to a wedding, right? Most of us. Who is the most beautiful person at a wedding? The bride, right. Who is the coolest guy at the wedding? The groom. Who said the best man? Do we have security? I can't believe you said that. No, the groom is always the, 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 the coolest guy at the wedding. In fact, if Justin Bieber comes in and he's a guest, who's the coolest guy at the wedding? The groom. Okay? If Don Johnson comes in to the wedding, who's the coolest guy at the wedding? The groom. Devin really thinks this guy's cool. If Steve Urkel comes in and he's at the wedding, who's the coolest guy at the wedding? The groom. Have you ever noticed even the nerdiest, ordinary guy at the wedding, he is so cool and people can't wait for him to come over to their table or to get greeted. It's like, the groom is coming, the groom is coming, the bride is coming, the bride is coming. The groom at a wedding can be the most ordinary person and they are transformed into a rock star when they stand up there and marry that woman. And what I do, every wedding that I've, that I've ever performed is I, I always, at the rehearsal, I always pull aside the best man. I always say to the best man the same thing. I say, listen, here's your job for tomorrow. Your job is to do everything that you can possibly do to help the groom have a great day. Any need of his that you can take care of, any way that he needs to be served, if you can just do that, it will be a great day for both of you. And I've never had a best man who's ever said to me, really? Are you serious? Because I was really hoping just to kind of kick back and, and meet some girls and, and have some fun. I've never had that said. What always happens, and this is part of why I keep doing it, is the best man's face lights up and says, of course, this is my friend. This is his big day. Anything that I can do to celebrate him and help him and to make this the most special day he could have, I will do. The best man's responsibility is to serve and to celebrate the groom. That's what he does. And that was John's attitude. John said, I know who Jesus is. He's the groom. He is the coolest guy in the room. And he said, I know what my position is. I'm the groom's friend. I get to be in the wedding party. He might even say, he said, I'm the best man. And he says at the end, this joy of mine is now complete. It is my joy to serve the groom. Let me ask you this question. Do you see Jesus this way? Do you see Jesus as the coolest guy in the room? I know that is, is maybe a little bit of a cheesy phrase, but the coolest guy in the room is the guy that every other guy wants to be. Is Jesus the guy that you want to be? Many people see Jesus as a, an, a very interesting story, a, a very helpful moral person, an idea, a philosophy, a legend. Many people think of him as being a very great person, which he is and is true. But do you see him as the coolest person who ever 
lived and as the person that you want to be like. When you read about his life, does it inspire you and challenge you and motivate you and, and want you to understand it better and become more like that? When you read about his death, does it sometimes bring tears to your eyes because you think, how could someone who is so great suffer so greatly? What kind of love must he have had that he would endure what he did and when Easter comes and we celebrate him rising again, conquering sin, offering new life, is there something inside of you that goes, yes, Jesus is so cool. And I get to be his friend. I think that's what John did. I think that's part of what was in his heart. Jesus said to his people, I no longer call you servants, he said. Instead, I call you friends. Does that blow your mind sometimes? It should. It should blow our minds. See, here's the thing. We, I think if we're like John the Baptist and believe that, we can serve God with joy because we know that we're his friend. We celebrate and we serve. And what this is in the Christian faith, it is, it is a position of security. If I know that God thinks I'm his friend, then I can serve him with joy. But you know what the problem is? The problem is sometimes people don't really believe that they're God's friend. And they can't serve with joy. They can only serve to do what? Try to get God to become their friend. Many Christians, I think, have a sort of point system in their mind. They might have come to church. They might be following Christ. They might have trusted in his death and resurrection. But in their mind, they think, if God is going to love me more, it means somehow I've got to do more to earn that friendship, that, that, that love from him. And the more that I do for him, the more worthy I become of that. But you know, the Bible doesn't teach that in any way. This is a bad analogy, but... Imagine if someone gave you a car for your birthday. It's a really nice car. And you thought, I, how can I accept this car? I don't deserve this car. I, I haven't earned this car. I don't have any money to pay for this car. And so you take the car. This is where it sort of falls apart, but go with me. You take the car to the dealer, and you say to the dealer, look, uh, I, I, I love this car, but I, I don't deserve it. Is there any way we can make out some sort of a payment plan so that I can pay you for this really nice car? And the dealer says to you, no, you cannot pay for the car. And you say, why not? And he says, because it's already been paid for. You can't pay for a car that's already been purchased. And in the same way, people try to earn from God something that's already theirs. When Jesus went to the cross, died for our sins, the Bible teaches that everything that we ever could want from God was purchased for us by him at that moment. And that because of Jesus' work and life and death, God cannot love a person any less, and he can't love them anymore. There's nothing left for us to earn. Imagine if you had a son or a daughter, and they were an A-plus student, and they were always working so hard on their homework, and one day you went in as a parent and you said to them, why do you work so hard? And they said to you, I work so hard because I'm not always sure that you love me. And so I do this to try to be worthy of your love in some way. If they said that, you would be crushed, right? 
And you would say, that is not how my love works. I love you without conditions, without strings attached. Well, that's the way that God loves us too. In fact, to say to God, there's some way that I can earn your God by doing something, do you understand how that kind of demeans God's love? Do you understand how in some sense, it's like that's almost offensive in some way? What humility says is it says, I could never earn God's love. And I could never do anything that would continue to keep it. And so I can serve God out of joy for what I have, not trying to earn something that I don't. And one of the most dangerous things that a person can do when they serve is to, instead of letting the love that God has for me fuel my service, they can try to use their service to fuel the love that God has for them. It gets everything reversed. And pretty soon a person is serving and doing all the right things for all the right reasons, and they get burned out really quick. Their slogan is, let's just get busy for Jesus, right? Let's just, just keep active. Let's just keep doing things because if I stop, my points in his eyes are going to go down. We always said to our student ministry leaders when they taught that if you haven't come early and gone to a service, go there instead. We'll figure out, you know, what needs to be teach, taught. We can make that happen. But the first thing is always God's relationship with you being the fuel. And what John did is I think he knew that. I think he put Jesus in his proper position. He said, I'm not God. I don't have to try to be God. I'm, I'm just his friend. Jesus is God. And it's just a joy to serve my friend. I get to. Friendship is something that it's not earned. It's, it's granted. John didn't care what people thought about him. John wasn't trying to earn the way that God thought about him. And, and finally, John was willing to step into the background in his service if it meant that Jesus would shift into the foreground. John's probably the most famous words that he ever uttered were, he must increase and I must decrease. How many of you would love to see Jesus increase in your life? And how many of you would love it if when people saw you, they were pointed to him, and that people through your life, they started to love God more? Right? Most of us would. How many of you would love to see yourself decrease? Right? That's the problem, isn't it? The problem, the tension, the rub is we want to see Jesus increase, but the thing that's hard about that is we don't want to decrease. Nobody wants to be a nobody. Emily Dickens wrote this great poem that I think is kind of funny about this. She says, I'm a nobody. Who are you? Are you a nobody too? Then there's a pair of us, but don't tell. They'd banish us, you know. Nobody wants to be a nobody, and nobody wants to be with a nobody. But the problem is that making Jesus increase almost always means that we have to decrease. It rarely happens that when I make him increase, that I increase too. I think what can happen sometimes is that there's a way that Christians can almost over-glamorize serving God. Let me see if this makes sense to you. 
Have you ever heard somebody say, you know, I was serving in this thing, and I will tell you what, I got more out of it than I put into it. You ever heard somebody say that? You ever experienced that? I have too. I've experienced that all the time. That's one of the true wonderful things about the Christian faith is that when we serve, God uses us uses it in us oftentimes more than he uses it in them. If I look at my whole ministry of serving, I would say I've received so much more than I have ever even begun to give. But you know the thing about that? It's not like that every time. That's not always the way that it feels. I, I was talking to a younger friend of mine who's involved in a lot of different serving things, and he was being quite vulnerable, I thought, and he said to me, um, he said, you know, sometimes when I serve, I feel so good and I love it. And then he stopped and he said, but you know what? Sometimes when I get in the car to go home, I feel empty. And you know what I thought? I thought he's probably doing something right. I thought there's, that probably means that he really is serving with all of his heart. Sometimes serving is really tough. Sometimes when we serve other people, that's what it feels like. My wife serves at Buddy Break. She loves Buddy Break. Buddy Break is one of the most wonderful things that our church does. But there's some Saturdays when she comes home and she is charged up. And there are some Sundays, Saturdays, when she comes home and she is ready for a nap. Okay? She hasn't increased. She's decreased. And loving other people is work. I think sometimes people feel like, well, because I'm serving, I'll just sort of float through and God will give me the energy and it won't be that hard. It's not always that way. Decreasing sometimes means that I lose something so that he will gain something. And there will be times when you serve where you'll drive home empty. There will be times that you will feel lesser and you won't feel fuller. There will be times when you serve that someone else is going to receive the honor, even if maybe you deserved it, and you will feel like you're in the background. There will be times you'll feel like you are offering something good to people, but nobody is showing up or taking you up on it. Times when you serve, the result is not obvious, and the work is hard, and you will wonder if it's worth it. And there will be times when it seems like nobody notices and nobody cares. And that is the test of an attitude. That is where attitudes are shaped and formed. And what I want us to realize this morning is that that must have been how John felt. That was the exact situation that he was in. And his response was, I've got to decrease. He's got to increase. I'm willing to decrease if he can be increased. There's an old Christian song with lyrics that goes like this. I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody who can save anybody. That was John the Baptist. I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody who can save everybody. That was his attitude. I want to just imagine for a minute what it would be like if we shared that. What would it be like if, if we really realized when we came to serve God that I'm not doing this so people will like me. I don't care who notices. 
I don't care who likes me more, who, who, where the applause is. I, I serve at the pleasure of God. If we felt, and I'm not doing this so that God would like me too. I do this because he already does. I, I, do, I do it because I'm his friend, and my job is to serve and to celebrate. And if we said, and I'm willing to be a nobody, as long as it will make Jesus look like a somebody. You know, some of the most amazing words said by Jesus were said about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was in prison at the time, and Jesus' disciples asked about him. And what Jesus said about John the Baptist was this. Jesus says, quote, Truly I say to you, Okay, when Jesus says that, you know he's saying something he really means. He's like, pay attention to this. I'm serious about this. He said, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Jesus says, of all the people who has ever lived, there is no one who is greater than John the Baptist. And why did he say that? I really think that the heart of the Son of God was tremendously moved by this eccentric preacher who lived out in the woods. I think John's life moved Jesus, and I think that Jesus, who knew all things, knew John's attitude. And John's attitude was everything. Let's pray. Father, just as I, I, I speak these words, I know that I know how hard what I'm saying is to not care what other people think about us. I, I just think it takes an entire lifetime to move towards and we'll probably never get there. Father, sometimes the way that we can twist your love and manipulate it into something that is based on us when you are the definition of love and the way that we can some, sometimes often want to make ourselves uh, greater. John the Baptist, I think he, he challenges that in so many ways. Father, I pray that you would teach us what it means to be humble servants who love you and who rejoice at what you've done and whose greatest joy in life is to share your love, your grace, your forgiveness with others. May we be a group of nobodies who, whose role it is to tell everybody about the somebody who can save everybody. Thank you, Father, that you invite us into that. Thank you that we can serve you freely and with joy. And we pray that you would help produce us, produce in us that. In Jesus' name, amen.